the nature of Christ's rest and the nature of this idea of rest as it's presented in the text. Over the past many weeks, we have been considering this exhortation regarding this nature, right, of entering into Christ's rest, beginning with that careful study of why we do not believe Hebrews 3 and 4 warn about losing one's salvation, nor do we believe Hebrews 3 and 4 are warning uh, those who are not saved regarding the threat upon their souls, but rather warning believers about the danger of failing to enter into the victorious Christian life. Is everything good to go, David? Okay. Um, so we studied the warning from Numbers 12 through 14 itself, right? And we considered the example of unbelief from the nation of Israel. Then last time we were together, we considered the danger that's rooted in unbelief. The remedy to this danger, the danger of the deceitfulness of sin, being that we exhort one another while it is called today, lest any of us are hardened through said deceitfulness of sin. And we stopped there last time because it was enough that we considered that constant exhortation that we would exhort one another and that we would do so that we might avoid the deceitfulness of sin. Today we're going to round out the teaching on our thinking about this actual warning of falling short of Christ's rest. Last time we considered the deceit, the solution through mutual encouragement. This week, we consider the great enemy, this enemy of unbelief. So we read in the text, and I'm going to start back in verse 12. The Bible says in Hebrews chapter 3, verse 12, Take heed, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God, but exhort one another daily while it is called today lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. For we are made partakers of Christ, if we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast unto the end. While it is said, Today, if you will hear his voice, harden not your hearts, as in the provocation. For some, when they had heard, did provoke, howbeit not all that came out of Egypt by Moses. So within the context, we have this warning. Take heed, right? Lest any of us would manifest this evil heart of unbelief, a heart that would compel us to depart from the living God, a heart that can be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. And it was within this context that we were encouraged to exhort one another daily. Paul's thought and argument then continues in verse 16. Some, when they had heard the condition of the promised land, did provoke. That's what we see. For some, when they had heard, did provoke. How be it, he says, not all that came out of Egypt or at least that's how our King James renders it. Howbeit, be that as it may, some, when they heard it, did provoke, be that as it may, not all that came out of Egypt by Moses. Though some provoked, not all provoked. Now, it's important, or at least it's worth noting, it's maybe not important per se, but it's worth noting uh, that modern translations render this very, very differently. In the King James, the text makes the point that while some did indeed provoke the Lord in the wilderness on that day, not everyone did. And the flavor of that interpretation, as we will go to the next several verses, and it will talk about those that did, uh, with whom he was grieved for 40 years, the flavor of this exhortation was that it was not inevitable that the people should have provoked. Because not everyone did. And not everyone was punished just because some did provoke, but only those who did provoke, right? They are the ones who died in the wilderness. It was not required that because some provoked, everyone should be destroyed. 
And then Paul would go on to elaborate on that point in subsequent verses. But as I mentioned, do take note that, that this verse very, renders very differently in modern translations that whereas the King, in the King James, Paul seems to be focusing on this idea that not everyone that day provoked, not everyone was judged. In most other modern translations, if you've uh, uh, picked up and read one of those as it relates to this passage, the way they render it does not focus on the idea that some did not sin, but only on the idea that most did sin. Now, as you look at this one, and I bring this up particularly because the change is so dramatic, but the Greek is actually the same. This is simply a translation difference, and both of them are valid. Both of them are valid ways to look at it. And it seems as though contextually, from the flow of the text, actually the way, and you don't hear this often from me, the way the modern translations translate it makes a little more contextual sense to me. But the way that the King James renders it makes a little bit more broader theological sense to me. What I mean by that is this. In the immediate, verses 17 and 18, it makes sense that 16 would reflect that same idea of those that died in the wilderness. However, if we carry the argument through to verses 1 and 2 of chapter 4, where the exhortation is to take heed, is to fear, is to make sure that we are not of them, then what a blessing it is, as we would render this out, that we would be reminded that it was not inevitable that the people should have died in the wilderness. It was not written in the stars that they had to provoke. Nor was it that just because a couple provoked, everyone went down with the ship. For indeed, those that did not provoke, those that did not tempt the Lord in the wilderness on that day, were not the ones that had to die in the wilderness. But rather at least in Joshua and Caleb, now Moses and Aaron, they did not provoke on that day either. They would have other reasons for not entering into the promised land. But Joshua and Caleb did enter in. And as we'll see, because they had faith. And this is the idea that we carry then into verses 17 and 18. But with whom was he grieved 40 years? Was it not with them that had sinned, whose carcasses fell in the wilderness? And to whom swear he that they should not enter into his rest, but to them that believe not? Consider these questions with me. Who was it that provoked? It was those led by Moses out of Egypt. Who was it that grieved the Lord for 40 years? It was those that sinned on that day of provocation. And whose bodies would fall in the wilderness over the subsequent 40 years? Who was it unto whom God swore that they would not enter into his wrath? Rest, excuse me, because of his wrath. It was those that believed not. And this is where that contrast in verse 16 can truly be helpful. It was not all. It was those that believed not. Choices have consequences. There are times in our lives when we're presented with opportunities. When it's time to make a decision. When an opportunity to exercise belief or unbelief presents itself. When there is a moment, when there is an opportunity, when there is a decision to be made, Israel came to one of those crossroads. 
God had led them out with a mighty hand. He had sustained them in the wilderness. He had given them his law. He had revealed himself to them. He had dwelt among them through the tabernacle. He had met their needs. He had supplied their wants. And then he brings them to the door of the promised land and he commands the spies to, the spies to go in and to report in the land. And this was it. This was their opportunity to believe. This was their opportunity to take a hold of what God had given them, to enter in to the land that God had promised them, to requite all of God's favor and blessings upon them with the kind of implicit trust that God not only deserved simply by virtue of his power and position, but that God most certainly had earned through the signs and the wonders and the care and the redemption. And they rejected it. And they faltered. They failed. They refused the step of faith. They fell short of belief. And as we said a couple of weeks ago, it was not that they rejected the land. The land was everything they wanted. It was not that they did not want what God promised them. They most certainly did want it. They rejected the terms upon which they could have the land, right? The terms that they had to be constantly reliant upon God who had promised because the land was full of enemies and was surrounded on every side with enemies. And so the only way that they were going to be successful and prosperous in the land, taking the land and maintaining the land, was if they lived moment by moment in trust of God. And we read the inevitable result of this condition in verse 19. So we see that they could not enter in because of unbelief. And this verse kind of speaks for itself. Because of unbelief, they could not enter into the land. That is really the simple and straightforward essence of this text. That's the thought that I want us to think through this evening. The offer was made, the land was before them, but they did not believe. They had been duped by the deceitfulness of sin. They had been confused by the, faithful, the faithlessness of others, the, namely the ten spies. They had rejected the terms of entering into the land, and so they said no. And they turned their hearts back toward a longing for Egypt. And so they could not enter in. Choices have consequences. We spoke this morning in Sunday school about this idea that God, in his sovereignty, has chosen to limit himself with respect to man's free will. That God has given us the means by which to make choices. And there are things that God will not do if we, as those with whom God is interacting, fail to align ourselves with what he has seen fit. It's an important concept, Christian. Now, as we relate ourselves to salvation, we recognize that the offer of salvation is on the table until a person takes his last breath. And we think through this reality that until a person takes his last breath, there is always an opportunity for a person to be saved, no matter how much time they have spent shaking their fist at God, no matter how often they have uh, re refused and rejected the things of the Lord if in that moment as they recognized their end is upon them uh, they were to accept Christ they were to recognize and humble themselves before the gospel they will be saved we recognize that God is long suffering and that because God is long suffering there are oftentimes multiple opportunities for us as we would uh, walk throughout our lives to repent and to realign with God and with his word but we need to understand as well Christian that with each Point that we come to in our Christian lives where we have a point of decision where we come to a crossroads and we choose to exercise unbelief 
there is something there that even though God may give us beauty for ashes, even though there may be an opportunity where God will work all things together for good to them that love him and that are the called according to his purpose, where I can repent and find restoration and find opportunity, there is something lost on that day that you say no, Christian. There is something lost on that day that you cannot get back. There is some measure of blessing that when I say no, when I walk the other direction, yes, repentance down the road and opportunities might come, but that one, I said no to that. Whether that loss is just the loss of time. That I say no today and two years later I repent and I get right and now I have what the Lord promised, but I lost two years of it. Or whether that be a true opportunity today, which will not be there tomorrow. Choices have consequences. And this is why there is an urgency to what Paul is saying here. There's an urgency to what Paul is saying here because we don't know what saying no today will mean for tomorrow. I don't know whether I, when I come to the crossroads of faith and God is calling me to believe, if I say no, I, I don't know how, how much of an opportunity there will be tomorrow. So I want to say yes today. So I want to be right today. I don't want to set it on the shelf and say, well, I can always come back to God tomorrow. I can always figure it out tomorrow. Israel here stood at the door of the promised land once. One time they said no. They did not get another chance. They wandered for the next 40 years until that generation died off and their children entered into the land. Now, I do not say this to try to hold over our heads any sort of a threat. But we must be realistic here. We do not know what, what the consequences of saying no to God are. And may I say it this way? We don't want to know. I don't want to know. Far better just to say yes. I wonder, what, I wonder what would happen if I say no. Maybe nothing will happen if I say no. Maybe, but you don't want to, you don't want to find out. It's not worth it, Christian. So we see that they could not enter in because of unbelief. I think that perhaps one of the best descriptions of this whole process is found in Psalm 78. It's a long psalm, and I'm going to read the whole thing for you, 41 verses, so buckle up. Psalm 78 says this, A mascal of Asaph, Give ear, O my people, to my law. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings of old which we have heard and known and our fathers have told us, we will not hide them from their children, showing to them uh, the, uh, the generation to come the praises of the Lord and his strength and his wonderful works that he hath done. For he established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel, which he commanded our fathers that they should make them known to their children, that the generation to come might know them, even the children which should be born who should arise and, and declare them to their children. So the idea, Asaph saying that, I, that, they're, that they're singing these things that the, that the generations to come can, can understand and can know, 
can know the, the decision-making process and the consequences thereof. Verse 7, that they might set their hope in God and not forget the works of God, but keep his commandments. This is why this is written. And might not be as their fathers, a stubborn and rebellious generation, a generation that set not their hearts aright and whose spirit was not steadfast with God. Asaph is writing saying, you don't want to be this way. The children of Ephraim being armed and carrying bows turned back in the day of battle. They kept not the covenant of God and refused to walk in his law and forgot his works and his wonders that he had showed them. Marvelous things did he in the sight of their fathers in the land of Egypt in the field of Zoan. He divided the sea and caused them to pass through and he made the waters to stand as in heap. In the daytime also he led them with a cloud and all the night with a light of fire. He claved the rocks in the wilderness and gave them drink as out of the great depths. He brought streams also out of the rock and caused waters to run down like rivers. And they sinned yet more against him by provoking the Most High in the wilderness. And they tempted God in their hearts by asking meat for their lust. Yea, they spake against God. They said, Can God furnish a table in the wilderness? Behold, he smote the rock that the water gushed out and the streams overflowed, can he give bread also? Can he provide flesh for his people? These are all the provocations, right? Therefore the Lord heard this and was wroth. So a fire was kindled against Jacob and anger also came against Israel because they believed not in God and trusted not in his salvation. Though he had commanded the clouds above and opened the doors of heaven and had rained down manna upon them to eat, and had given them the corn of heaven. Man did eat angels' food. He sent them meat to the full. He caused an east wind to blow in the heaven, and by his power he brought in the south wind. He rained flesh also upon them as dust and feathered fowls like as the sand of the sea. And he let it fall in the midst of their camp round about their habitation. So they did eat and were well filled. For he gave them their own desire. They were not estranged from their lust. But while their meat was yet in their mouths, the wrath of God came upon them and slew the fattest of them and smote down the chosen men of Israel. For all this, they sinned still and believed not for his wondrous works. Therefore their days did he consume in vanity and their years in trouble. When he slew them, then they sought him, and they returned and inquired early after God. And they remembered that God was their rock and the high God, their redeemer. Nevertheless, they did flatter him with their mouths, and they lied unto him with their tongues. For their heart was not right with him, neither were they steadfast in his covenant. But he, being full of compassion, forgave their iniquity and destroyed them not. Yea, many a time turned he his anger away and did not stir up all his wrath. For he remembered that they were but flesh, a wind that passeth away and cometh not again. How oft did they provoke him in the wilderness and grieve him in the desert? Yea, they turned back and tempted God and limited the Holy One of Israel. Asaph well described the nature of temptation in the heart of man here. And by his own words, he wrote Psalm 78 in order that, as he said in verse 7, 
the listeners might set their hope in God and not forget the works of God, but keep his commandments. See, because this is not the easy way, because this is not the natural way, it is not the natural thing for us to remember God. It is not the natural thing for us to keep his commandments. Even among we who have experienced God's greatness, even among we who have experienced God's love, even among we who have seen God's hand of goodness, his mercy and his provision, what we experience today can be quite easily forgotten tomorrow, can't it? The deliverance of yesterday is not necessarily easy to remember during the temptations of today. But instead, we are prone to forget his works. We are prone to forget his wonders. As the song says, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. We are ever prone to forget the joy of our salvation if at first the deceitfulness of sin is able to find its way into our lives. And we are faced with new challenges and we are faced with new obstacles and we are prone rather than turning our minds back to God's previous faithfulness or even turning our mind back to the previous judgments and consequences. We are prone again to forget, to wander, to forget those victories and to pursue self. Asaph speaks of the days when God led them through the sea and led them by the cloud and by the fire and gave them to drink from the rock. All of the wonders which we have considered for several weeks now only to say in verses 17 and 18, and they sinned yet more against him by provoking the Most High in the wilderness, and they tempted God in their heart by asking meat for their lust. So they tempted God. God gave them their desire, but with consequences. And what we see is this chain of consequences, this chain of failures, these, this chain of unbeliefs. And with each one, God showed a measure of patience, of willingness. Excuse me. God showed a measure of care. God showed a measure of long-suffering. But when they finally got to the gate of the promised land and they said no one more time, there were no more chances left. They could not enter in because of unbelief. Verse 32 of Psalm 78, For all this they sin still and believe not for, uh, for his wondrous works. And we see a measure of remembrance and repentance as Asaph describes it, but only in word. For verse 36 says that they, in the midst of the consequences, flattered God with their mouths and lied unto him with their tongues. But their hearts were not right. And so time and again they turned back. Time and again they forgot God. Time and again they limited the Holy One of Israel. Christian, this is the warning that we're considering this evening. Let us therefore fear. Let us fear if we're playing games with God. Let us fear if we are 
turning back to Him from time to time, but only in word. If we're saying, God, I'm back with you, but we're not actually. If we're saying, God, I'm going to go your way, but we don't actually. God, I want what you want, but we're not actually setting self aside. Let us fear. Because though God is long-suffering, and though God is patient, at what point will we say no and we will not get another chance? At what point will we come to a decision, a crossroads, and today is the day? Today is the day where you either walk in by faith into that thing that God has for you or you say no and you never get it. This is a possibility. We know that God is long-suffering. We know that God is patient. And we recognize, even as the children of Israel wandered in the wilderness, that God still provided for them. We've talked about that. But they missed out on God's best. And in that instance, they never had another chance to get it. They never had another chance to have it again. It's interesting, this phrase, they turned back and tempted God and limited the Holy One of Israel. Isaiah 59, verses 1 and 2 says this, Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, neither his ear heavy that it cannot hear. But your iniquities have separated between you and your God, and your sins have hid his face from you that he will not hear you. It is not that God's capacity to bless or to save or to heal or to redeem, to carry us through is not enough. It is not that God cannot pull you out of the mire of sin, out of the confusion, out of the sorrow, out of the mess that you find yourself in. But if our heart is not willing to humble itself before God to the extent that God is able to do in you what He can and wants to do in you, it's not that God cannot do it, but it is that we have limited him. God is not limited, but we can limit the Holy One of Israel through our choices. It is not that God holds back from us. It is that our choices, our heart of unbelief, can hold God back from us. Limit him in our lives. Separate between us and our God so that he must hide his face from us and he will not hear us. God has designed the world in such a way that he has bound his actions toward us as contingent upon our heart toward him so that my unbelief can and does limit God's capacity to work on my behalf if I exercise it. And so we read this warning in verses 1 and 2 of Hebrews 4. Let us therefore fear lest a promise being left us of entering into his rest, any of you should seem to come short of it. For unto us was the gospel preached as well as unto them, but the word preached did not profit them, not being mixed with faith in them that heard it. So the call is to fear. Take these things to heart. Have a healthy respect for the human propensity to falter. Have a healthy respect 
for the reality of the world as God has designed it, have a healthy understanding of the fact that when I say no to God, God might just say no back. And so prioritize my determination that I will not fall short of God's promise of rest by falling short of unbelief. And notice Paul's reasoning in verse 2. The gospel, that's the good news. In this case, we would not understand this to be the gospel of salvation. The word gospel simply means good news. It doesn't have to mean that Jesus died on the cross to save us from our sins and he was buried and he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. That is the gospel of salvation. This is a different gospel in context. This is the gospel of his rest. The good news that the land was there for them. The news that Caleb preached, that Caleb and Joshua came back with the other 10 spies. And he said, it is a good land and it is everything that God wants. Let's go get it. That's the gospel being spoken of here. The, the, the gospel that God had given them from the beginning, that the land was before them and that it would be theirs. That's the gospel. And he says, the gospel, the good news of this rest is given to us as it was given to them. We have the, the, the promise too. The land is before you. The rest is before you. Victorious Christian life is yours to have if you are willing. But they did not receive it because what they heard was not mixed with faith and so gave way to what we recognize as unbelief. Now, we mentioned just briefly in our overview sermon about this idea of the good news not always necessarily meaning salvation, just like the word salvation in the Bible or in the New Testament doesn't always mean being born again. So this is the preaching of the good news by Caleb, that the land was everything that it should be. And this same promise is ours. Christian, we read in the Word of God, and we read of these promises like we've talked about on Sunday mornings for the past several weeks, as we've sought to think through the weapons of the enemy, of fear and of anxiety and of, uh, of bitterness and of unforgiveness and, and of anger and of jealousy and all of these things. And we consider the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance, and we consider Jesus' teaching, I am come that they might have life and that they might have it more abundantly. And we consider Jesus' teaching that he comes that his joy might remain in us and that our joy might be full. And we read those things and we say, wow, that's what Jesus came to do. If the Son of Man will make you free, you shall be free indeed. Those are the promises. That's the gospel that lays before us. The victorious Christian life. The Christian life that says, I can truly be careful, be anxious for nothing. The Christian life that says, as Paul says in Philippians 4, for I have learned in whatsoever state I am therewith to be content. That I can do all things through Christ which strengtheneth me. As it relates to contentment, by the way, not everything in, that, in the broadest context-free sense of the word. When Jesus says, love your enemies, bless them that curse you, do good to them that hate you, 
All of it's possible. And this is the warning. Take heed. Fear. Lest this promise being left to us of entering into his rest, lest we fall short of it. The gospel was preached unto us as it was preached unto them, but to them it did not profit them because they didn't mix it with faith. Don't do the same. That's the exhortation. You can hear the urgency. You can feel the urgency as you read it. Paul is desperate, urgent, that they would not lose sight of this. The same gospel was preached unto us. And our fear should be that when the nation heard the gospel and they did not profit from us because their hearing was not mixed with faith, that it would happen to us as well. There might very well be some under the sound of my voice this evening who have heard this gospel too. I'm not saying salvation, born again. I'm saying the gospel of Christ's rest, victorious Christian life. The fact that this life of joy and of peace and of bearing the fruit of the Spirit and of abundance can be yours. Who will never profit from it. Because it will never be mixed with faith in your hearts. You will live your whole life knowing Christ, but never truly experiencing that which Christ has died to give you. Peace, joy, contentment, rest for your soul. Because when the opportunities arise for you to make a decision to enter into that land, to take it, you see the giants and you see the walls and you see the chariots and you see the people and you turn back and you tempt the Lord. You either long for Egypt once again and you say, I'll just stick to my own Egypt thing. I'll, I'll, I'll turn back to Egypt and I'll live that way because it's more comfortable. It's easier. I don't have to deal with walls. I mean, I may have to deal with slavery, but I don't have to deal with walls. I may have to deal with chains, but at least I don't have to deal with giants. Or maybe you say, I just need a few more signs, God. Yeah, you've led me by the cloud and the fire. Yeah, I, I, I do seem to recall something about the whole sea splitting in half and walking across on dry land, but I need a sign, God. You need things on your terms. Well, God, I'm not going to go in on, 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 on your terms. I need things on my terms. You're asking me to go into the land on your terms, that I have to trust you, that there's a big mountain there full of walled cities and full of giants and full of chariots. And you tell me that if I go in, 10 will chase 100 and 100 will chase 10,000. But here's the thing. I, I, I need the tangibles, God. I need the tangibles. I need to see that I've got more power than them or else I just, I don't have, I, I don't believe I can do it. Uh, maybe I'll just stay out here. And you shorten God's hand and you limit the God of Israel and he cannot give you rest. In 1 John chapter 5, verse 4, the Bible says, For whatsoever is born of God overcometh the world. And this is the victory that overcometh the world, even our faith. We talked about this in brief. I don't remember in which context a little while ago. Those who live in the power of the new nature that is born into them at salvation overcome the world. This is a statement of fact. It doesn't mean that a person who has accepted Jesus Christ as their Savior always and inevitably overcomes the world. It's that a person who is living in the new man that has been given to them at salvation constantly overcomes the world. Those who live in this power enter into God's rest. 
But notice where the victory is that overcomes the world. The victory is not in knowing what the Bible says, Christian. Plenty of evil people, even demons, know what the Bible says. The victory is not even with agreeing what the Bible says. Agreeing with what the Bible says. Plenty of evil people agree with what the Bible says. The victory is believing what the Bible says. Faith is the victory that overcomes the world. Taking what you know, agreeing to it, and then appropriating it into your life. That's faith. And this has always been the mark of true faith. This is what James talks about in James 2. Beginning in verse 14, James 2 says, What doth it profit, my brethren? Though a man say he hath faith and have not works, can faith save him? If a brother or sister be naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you say unto them, Depart in peace, be ye warmed and filled, notwithstanding ye give them not those things which are needful to the body, what doth it profit? Even so faith, if it hath not works, is dead, being alone. Yea, a man may say, Thou hast faith, and I have works. Show me thy faith without thy works, and I will show thee my faith by my works. Thou believest that there is one God, thou doest well. The devils also believe and tremble. But wilt thou know, O vain man, that faith without works is dead? For as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead also. Take note, this is not a passage about salvation. Okay, This is a passage about faith. There's a difference. Paul is exhorting us here unto faith. He said that the gospel, this rest, was not profitable in them because it was not mixed with faith. The same question is asked here. What does faith profit if it does not have works? It's all well and good to know that you're supposed to meet the needs of those who do not have. It's better still that you agree that God has commanded you to meet the needs of those who do not have. But the thing that proves that you actually believe what God says that you're supposed to give to those who do not have is when you do it. Works, as it were, are kind of the skin, the flesh and the skin that hangs upon the bones of faith. Faith does not demand works to exist. We know this to be true from the Word of God. Faith is entirely separate from works. And works can be done entirely separate from faith. But where faith exists, Christian, the work that is natural to that faith inevitably follows. And we've talked about this many times. I'm not going to get into it in depth this evening. For those listening online, you may not quite fully understand what I just said there. Apologize for that. We don't have time to really dig into it this evening. But the idea is this. When I exercise faith, there is a commensurate work that is always connected to that faith and will inevitably manifest itself. If I exercise faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ to save me from my sins, the commensurate work that will always be manifest is that I will cease from my own dead works and I will cease from attempting to earn my way to heaven. That's the commensurate work that accompanies faith in, in, in Jesus Christ to be saved. Faith to enter into God's rest will always accompany the commensurate work of entering. If I believe it, 
then I will enter in. Where faith in God's word regarding his provision of needs exists, it will inevitably, uh, for the needy, the provision of the needy, in other words, where, where faith in God saying, give to those who have need exists in my heart, I will inevitably give to those that are in need as I have the ability. And if I have true faith in God's rest, the victorious Christian life, overflowing with the fruit of the Spirit, consistent, though not necessarily constant victory over sin, if I truly believe that that rest exists, then I will submit to the conditions of God by which to get them. Namely, I will obey His word, I will believe His commands, I will abide in His love, and I will reap the blessings thereof. And Christian, if you are not reaping the blessings of the victorious Christian life, it, I, I, I'm not saying that you do not know, for if you've been here over the last few weeks, you know. I'm not saying you don't agree, because you probably do agree. We're generally here sitting underneath this teaching because we all agree that the Bible is true. But I can tell you this, if you are not experiencing it, it is because of your unbelief. It has to be, because that's the only thing standing between you and your God. That's the only thing standing between me and my God. The only thing that limits us in this life is our willingness to exercise faith in what the Word of God has told us. And if you don't live in that place, the issue is not that you can't live in that place. And, and please take note of that. There are so many Christians that live in constant discouragement, honestly feeling as though you simply cannot have these things that God has promised. It isn't true. It's a lie. You can. It is not that you can't have it. It is not that God's hand is shortened, that he cannot save. It is not that God's ear is heavy, that he cannot hear. It is that you have not chosen to enter into his rest. It is that your knowledge has not been mixed with faith. Your hearing has not been mixed with faith. And so all that you know and all that you've heard is not profiting you because it's not been mixed with faith. And that is the warning of today that we fear, lest we fall short of the promises which have been left to us, lest we fall short of the faith which these promises have secured, lest we are overcome by the world rather than living in a manner that overcomes the world. Because what we exercise in our hearing is not mixed with a heart of faith. And so we fall short in unbelief. And Christian, as we exercise this warning, let us do so with a measure of urgency. Because we don't know what tomorrow will bring. Because we don't know what saying no to an opportunity that God presents us today means for tomorrow. We do know that God is long-suffering. We do know that God is merciful. We do know 
that God is willing. We do know uh, that God loves us. We do know that God is going to take us by the hand and to lead us. We do know that God knows, and we're going to see this particularly as we continue in Hebrews, that we are frail and that we are, are weak and that we have needs and that we are imperfect. And we know that God knows all of these things. But that doesn't mean that there are not points where we might miss out on something and not, not have another shot if we say no to God today. And because we're not ignorant of these things, let us mix what we hear, let us mix what we know with the faith to believe it and claim that rest which God has secured for us. Let's close in prayer. Thank you for listening to Pastor Jamin Wickler from Legacy Baptist Church in Buffalo, Minnesota. More information about Legacy Baptist Church and a library of sermons are available at www.legacybaptistchurch.net.